You're listening to the City Lights Podcast. City Lights is a church located in Greenville, South Carolina, devoted to building family, blessing neighbors, and bringing good news to the nations. Thanks for joining us. All right, so um, uh, happy Thanksgiving from last week and then Merry Christmas. Looking forward. Are you guys a fan of Christmas yet? Raise your hand if you've seen Elf yet. Have you watched Elf? Have you looked at Home Alone yet? I don't think Christmas can get started until, at least in our house, until, uh, until Elf gets fired up. Um, uh, excited for Christmas. Um, I know that we were joking beforehand about uh, everybody's, uh, at least the pastors I know, and probably a lot of us had this kind of like 2020 vision, you know, 2020 vision was supposed to be the year of vision, and it's been a vision, all right, it's been a different kind of vision, Uh, maybe not not the one that we asked for, but I certainly do feel in some of the kind of more supernatural ways, a level of clarity and a level of perspective for sure that I think we can all be helpful for. And, and I pray, I know that as we transition, you know, into this next year, um, just as Sharon encouraged us this morning, that we would look at our lives from his perspective and not ours. Um, uh, there's a difference between seeing something and him showing us something. There's a difference between um, us uh, conjuring up things in our own understanding and reflection. There's another thing of moving into future seasons with hope. Um, we have such a narrow scope of, of experience. You know, what have you been alive, you know, 20, 30, 40 years? And you look at the ups and downs of some of the scripture and the history we'll look up today. There's been way higher highs and way lower lows, and God's been faithful through all the valleys and all the mountains. And so, um, and that is why we are, you know, continue to gather here on days like this, uh, knowing that he is true, he is good, he is faithful in every single season. Um, we have a couple of uh, uh, resources um, that I wanted to show you guys as we kind of hit the midway point of our series called Read Scripture. Um, If you're like Nema um, and you are not arrived yet, but you want to continue to grow in your confidence and your understanding of the unified story that points to Jesus, um, you know, I guess it's just like my dad used to tell me about karate. You know, you just got to go from white belt to yellow belt, I guess, right? And so um, the process, I think, you know, I think that Jesus says it's not just the people that hear his word, but practice it. And I think there is something about practice. And so um, as we continue to grow as people that know our story, that know our spiritual heritage, yes, like where you're from, if I asked you what state are you from and what city and what high school did you grow up from, but deeper than that, you have a spiritual heritage if you're in Christ. And our scripture tells us that story. And so um, I highly recommend the ESV Study Bible. It's a red and white and black hardcover deal. And it just gives you a lot of that, as we've been talking about, observation, interpretation, application. It doesn't do that pastoral application, but it does help to try and pitch right down the middle of what does this verse mean uh, so that you can take that home. Um, There's another book by Eugene Peterson called Eat This Book, which is just all about more of the why of Scripture and how we would look at it so that it would become a part of our lives, not just stay up here in our head but move into our heart. Great book. Um, How to Read the Bible for All That It's Worth uh, is a book uh, by Doug Fee, and it's kind of the um, gateway entrance into learning how to interpret and, and develop a fancy word hermeneutics, which just means how you look at the scriptures well, um, is a great book, and it kind of divides up the sections we've been going through. Um, the Bible Project videos are just incredible, and out of all of those, I think you could spend six minutes, you know, watching an Isaiah video uh, and learn a ton just about the overall story. And if there's anything I think that I've tried to land on in the last couple of weeks is just give the bigger picture so that when we get down into Psalm 47, that we're not confused by the tree in spite of the forest, and we see the bigger picture that all points to Jesus, even in those weird confusing, convoluted uh, verses, or tough ones at least. Warren Wiersbe is a great uh, pastoral commentary that just kind of takes it home for you, and if, if you're looking for something to help, um, you know, accurately interpret the scripture, but also kind of come up to the coffee table and apply it to your heart in the morning, uh, Warren Wiersbe has a book uh, for each one of the books of the Bible with great commentary on it. I love John Saleheimer, who uh, does a good job of helping to create you know, threads, and a lot of threads that I'm pulling on today, I've read in books uh, by him, and 
Um, and so anyways, those are a snapshot of some things you could look at. But um, if you're just joining us again, we are uh, in, a, in a series right now called uh, Reading Scripture. Uh, we are understanding that the Scripture is a beautiful tapestry of writings that have come to us in a library. Uh, they have been ordained, they have been canonized, and they have been spiritually inspired to transform us into the wisdom of Jesus. And uh, so we need to observe the Scriptures before we interpret them and interpret them before we apply them. They are both human and divine. They are cultural and eternal. Uh, and they can meet us right here in 2020. And the goal there is not just to walk away as a student, but as a son, and to, to eat the book, to let it become the muscular dystrophy and the practice of our, um, of our muscle memory. Um, over Thanksgiving, I was, uh, I was watching um, a, an Instagram clip um, from a comedian called Dave, Dave Chappelle. And uh, I wouldn't recommend watching it. There's a few bleepers in there for sure. Um, but I'll tell you what, man, preachers could learn how to preach from that guy in terms of, applica- in terms of delivery because that guy knows how to speak. And I've heard a lot of different speakers, and that guy knows how to get a point across. And uh, so he, he's up there, and he, and he essentially tells three stories about his um, recent engagement with uh, Netflix, the company Netflix and HBO. And uh, he tells three stories, and honestly, the structure of them, if you look at them, they look a lot like parables. We'll talk about parables next week because Jesus um, taught things in parables so that the wise would understand them but the foolish wouldn't. And uh, parables are meant to provoke you. They're meant to startle you, get up in your business, and really make you think. And so, anyways, he tells these personal stories, but they might as well have been, you call them, you know, personal parables. So the first story starts out like this. He's 18 years old, and um, uh, he was, you could tell he's a natural. You know what I mean? There's just certain things you can't teach. And so he knew how to tell stories and make jokes and stuff. And all the 40-year-old comedians used to laugh at him and just think, man, like, this guy is so poised for being 15 years old. They'd sit there and just marvel at him. And he was a comedian's comedian. Like, not just people thought he was funny, but people that were, like, sound and knew how to do, you know, jokes, like, thought he had a, a real gift. And so apparently that uh, a 40-year-old came up to him one day and said, uh, hey, son, uh, he's 18 years old. He says, uh, I, got a, um, I got an audition across town. Can I borrow that joke that you just, that you just told me? Everyone thinks, thinks it's real funny. And, you know, he's real excited, 18 years old. Yeah, like, sure, you can use the joke. So guy goes across town, uses the joke as the audition. Well, a couple months later, he realizes that uh, this guy is before him in an act, and he's still telling the joke. And, uh, and he, you know, doesn't have, a, you know, his act now, and he can't tell the joke. And so he asked the guy after the show, like, hey, man, listen, I like, let you borrow that joke, but I need it back. Uh, and the guy's like, oh, yeah, 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 I'm sorry, I, I meant to give it back. And he was like, he's like, tell you what, I really need this joke, though. Can I buy it off you for $50? And so Dave Chappelle says, man, I don't know, like $50, that's, I mean, that's not really enough. I'm trying to get my career off the ground, and like, this is like my livelihood, and I need to like build on that. It's like worth way more than $50 to me. And the guy just looked at him like uh, right in his eyes, 40-year-old down at 18-year-old, he says, well, then how about I just take it? And uh, Dave Chappelle says, you know what, I remember that, and I'm 48 years old, and I'll always remember it. It's not because it was the only time, it's because it was the first time. It's not the first time uh, that uh, you'll have somebody powerful over you that will look down on you and take something just because you're weak, just because you're small. He has a second story. He says he's got a bad woman that he's trying to hang out with, a Dominican lady that is from Brooklyn, and he's taking her out, and he's got $60 to spend, and that's all that he has. So he finds this card table. Um, uh, it's, the, it's, it's a three-card draw. It's called... a. Um, uh, red, red card Monty. You've got uh, three cards, and two of them are black and one of them are red. And you're supposed to pick out which one is the red one. And they're flying super fast. And there's a big crowd, and there's winners, there's losers, and there's a big crowd, and everybody's excited. He's got the $60, and he's trying to double his money because he's only got a weekend to entertain his bad woman. And, um, and so he notices there's a little bend on the card. And, um, and so, you know, he feels like he has the inside scoop. And so he steps up with confidence. His three cards are going, and he sets down all of his $60 for the weekend. And the guy starts moving the cards, and Dave keeps looking at the cards. And then he looks at him, and he points to the one with the folded thing. And uh, he says, that's it. That's the red one. And the guy says, you sure? He says, yeah. And he flips it over, and it's black. He takes his money. 
So Dave sits back, and he's really upset. Like, he's like, is this a magic trick? Like, what's going on? And he watches it, and as he realizes, uh, all the people that um, are winning are actually not winning because they're all part of the same crew. And there's a group of people that have all gathered around to go crazy and pretend like it's a real, like it's a real game, but actually it's a fake game. It's a rigged game. And so he gets really upset, and so somebody comes up, and he says, don't listen to a man. It's a scam. They're going to take your money or whatever. And as soon as he said that, the big guy that was flipping the cards, the biggest one in the whole crowd, just yokes him up by his collar. And he looks at him and stares him down. Dave said he was scared, and he looked at him, and he started to cry. And so the guy started to soften, and he set him down, and he looked at him. He said, like he spoke to me like a father to a son, and he said, um, he said, now, son, he said, don't ever get in between a man and his meal. And uh, Dave said he always remembered that. He said, don't ever get in front of a man and his meal because a, a man's livelihood is close to his life, and if you take his livelihood, it's like taking his life. So the third story is he's like uh, 28 years old, and he ends up in this boardroom, and he's got the Chevelle show, and it's really successful. So you guys know his stories. He stepped away, and he lost like $50 million on this contract, and he starts talking about the artist formerly known as Prince. I never knew this, but apparently the reason why he calls himself the artist formerly known as Prince is because in the contract, they call you the artist. The artist and your likelihood and your perpetuity and your contract goes on and on and on. And if you sign this thing, it's like you, you belong in some ways to the company. Like your face can't be on a video game or it can't be this or that because it's owned by the company. And so the, the, the contract that Prince signed back in the 80s, he didn't like with Warner Brothers. So he decided to change it and he called himself the artist formerly known as Prince so he could maintain autonomy over his likeness. And he said, and the reason why is because these contracts are just way too big for anybody to understand. And so you need a lawyer. Well, even then, Dave Chappelle said he went in there with a lawyer. And he said, uh, they handed him this contract, and it seemed like a good idea, and he's 28, and he has a child, and he, and, he, and he decided to sign it. Well, long story short, of course, the contract was no good, and, uh, and he had to walk, and he ended up, you know, not liking the terms of the contract, he walked away, and he had to lose $50 million way on down the line, which is why it was brought up, because recently, apparently, it was on Netflix and HBO, both of them came out on HBO, on, uh, at the same exact time over Thanksgiving, they didn't have to ask him, and they didn't have to pay him for anything because his name was on the contract and they owned his name and his likeness. So much so that he said, I thought about having another Dave Chappelle show, Dave Chappelle show part two. Uh, and he said, but I couldn't because my name and likeness are signed into perpetuity into all of the universe. And he said, um, the reality is that the contract wasn't bad because he had a bad lawyer. The contract was bad is because they were all in on it, just like that card game. And he said, the reason why he got he got taken advantage of wasn't because he was black, because he was African-American. He said the reason why he got taken advantage of is because um, Hollywood is a machine, and it's a monster, and it comes to take. He said the same, the same monster, the same beast is actually what he calls it, and I like that word because it shows up in our scriptures this morning. The same beast that took his joke is the same beast that takes little child actors and robs them of their youth, and of their livelihood, and spits them out when they're empty. The same beast that took Dave Chappelle's joke is the same beast that lures pretty attractive young girls onto the casting couch and takes their livelihood and spits them out when they're broken and when they're empty and they've got nothing, nothing, nothing else to give. And so honestly, if you looked at the story, you looked at the parable, the beast was always there. Like it wasn't just in the boardroom, it was in the card game, you know? It's the, it's the shark eats the fish and the fish eats the minnow. Like that's the way that the world works. So the beast was in the contract, but the beast was also in the card game. And the beast was also in the comedian. And the beast was there. And if we're honest, uh, as the Apostle Paul will say, and we'll read our opening scripture this morning and, and all of the themes of the prophets this morning, the beast is in all of us. The beast begins in the form of an idol and it moves to the machine of injustice. It says in Romans chapter 1, after... Um, Paul discusses the ideal of, idea of idolatry. 
Idolatry means that when you put the creation over the creator, this is what happens. There's three handing overs that God does for us as we choose the foolishness of worshiping creation above the creator. It says uh, in Romans 1 verse 28, Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they do what ought not to be done. They become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity, and they are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanders, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. And although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these things, but they approve of those who practice them. So we all know injustice when it's happened. Injustice means that somebody bigger has used their force not to care and serve, but to extort. When the bigger bully uh, looks down and grabs and takes from the smaller child, we've just witnessed injustice. But the scripture says that injustice is actually not uh, the origin of itself, every injustice that we'll ever see actually originated in an idol. All injustices begin in the seed form of idolatry. And every idol, once it grows up and given enough authority and leeway, will create injustice. So, uh, you know, I don't know if you, if you guys have kids or seen kids grow up, but they grow up pretty quick. And they'll get a beard and they'll start taking your keys in your car and just get in your fridge. I had a full-grown middle schooler in my house the other day, just in my fridge. I didn't even know who it was. I was like, excuse me, you're a full-grown man. Why are you in my fridge? They'll take your keys. The money's gone. No one knows what's going on if you're not in check with the kids, if you're not on top of it. Every idol, the Apostle Paul would say, is a seed that is ready to grow up. And once it has authority, it will take. And it will take and take and take if you feed it. And it will grow into full-grown injustice. So I did a devotion one time at a, at a private school in our, in our area. And the girl was talking to me afterwards, and she was worked up about something in her life. And she said, my mom won't pay for my prom dress unless I lose weight. Every injustice starts somewhere. It didn't just come out of nowhere. There's no harmless injustice, and there's no accidental injustice. Injustice is a recalibration of right and wrong on different terms. And every injustice has been given leeway by an idol somewhere. Every time that a a father decides that life's about sports and competition, more than Jesus, he can't govern his household according to justice because he's given his heart to an idol. So he will give favor to his more athletic son and not give favor to his intelligent son. There is no idol that does not produce injustice. There is no harmless idol. There is no passive idol. There is no idol that is unto itself, and there's no isolated idol. Every idol desires the keys. They want to get in the refrigerator, and if you feed it, it will grow into full-blown injustice. The institution of racism cannot be solved by government because government didn't create racism. Idols created it. So somewhere somewhere long ago, it was a small and harmless thing, the idol of comfort maybe, the idol of whiteness, you know, the idol of wealth, seeked its way into the hearts and minds, which seems relatively harm, harmless at, at, you know, at face value to do well and, and to work hard and so forth. But then culture, instead of becoming different, became right and wrong. And now I will not hire or let my children be married to people of that race or culture because my culture is not only different, it's better. 
So every injustice starts with idolatry, and every idolatry will ultimately turn into injustice. So let's just do a quick little exercise. You're scrolling through Facebook, you're liking stuff, you're skipping stuff, and then there's somebody that really bothers you. I mean, they're just, you're, oh, you're up to here. I mean, it's political season, you're done with it. <laughs> and there's a difference between acceptance and compassion, and then there's contempt. The Bible says contempt means that you're beyond grace, that you, you have no worth, you have no value. One person believes that the other one's less than human. And that is what happens when idols get lifted up. When something is lifted higher than Jesus, something will have to seep lower than humanity. Something is less than human if something is higher than Jesus. So here's the question. If you have compassion on one person who's a sinner and contempt on another person, do the math problem, subtract that, and ask yourself, what is it that that person that has compassion from your heart has that this person that, that you have contempt for does not have? And that's what's saving you. Ultimately, the thing that we, have, that we believe that that person is, that we have compassion for, that is worthwhile, worth your attention, worth your prayer, worth your care, worth your acceptance, worth your mercy, worth your grace, has something the person that you have contempt for doesn't have. Whatever that thing is that they have, because they're smart, or because they're Democrat, or because they're Republican, or because they're white, or because they're black, whatever that thing that person has, you've put that in the place of Jesus. Because all have fallen short, all are sinners, and no one was without the reach of Jesus. So the test point there of compassion and contempt is telling you your idol. And that idol, unchecked, will get in your fridge. And it'll eat whatever you feed it. And it will grow into full-grown injustice. Injustice doesn't come from nowhere. It comes from idols. And it comes from ongoing handing over of our, um, of our idolatry. So here's Isaiah 1. Turn your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 1. And I'm just going to do a quick rundown of this chapter, which gives us a launching point for the 17 comic book characters that are on here. I promise I won't linger too long on some of these. I want to get a picture of some of these, these prophets. But this is what Isaiah 1 says, and I think it's a template, really, for all of the rest of these scriptures. It says this, Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Listen to the instructions of our God, you people of Gomorrah. The multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me, says the Lord? I have more than enough to, uh, of burnt offerings of rams, of fat and fattened animals. So we're using heavy language here. You guys remember from the Genesis series, Sodom and Gomorrah, he's speaking to Israelites now, the promised people of Israel who had a covenant and failed to fulfill it. So we continued on this theme here about failed covenant. And he's calling them Sodom and Gomorrah. <laughs> this, is a, this is a strong word that this prophet is bringing. And so he says, you've got all these sacrifices, but they mean nothing to God. He says, these blood and these bulls and these lambs and these goats, they mean nothing to me. Verse 12, when you come to appear before me, who has asked this of you, this trampling of my courts? Stop bringing meaningless offerings, he says. Your incense is detestable to me. New moons, Sabbaths, and convocations, I cannot bear your worthless assemblies. Your new moon feasts and your appointment festivals, I hate it with all my being. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I hide my eyes from you. Even when you offer many prayers, I'm not listening. So the purpose of the prophet is to be a representative. God's voice was too loud in Exodus. So the prophets were the ones that were bringing the word of the Lord to people in a tone that they could understand. It doesn't mean that they liked what they had to say, but they brought it anyways. And so the essence of the prophet is to call out, is to rebuke and to warn about idols and then eventually uh, full-blown um, injustice that comes into the land. And so 
The opening passage of Isaiah and all, a lot of the prophetic books that you'll read, the first five books here, these are the major prophets and all the minor books down here, begin with this accusation. And the accusation is this. Instead of worshiping the creator over the creation, we've worshiped the creation instead of the creator. Now, if you look at it from face value, they're abiding by all the codes, and they're doing a new moon festival, which is out of, you know, uh, the law of Moses, and they're going Sabbaths, and they're doing those convocations, but it means nothing to them, uh, because um, he's going to appeal to them later that although their bodies are, are worshiping, their lips are worshiping Jesus, their hearts are far from them. So we need to establish one sort of rule of the road here when we think about um, idolatry and the idea of worship. When you look at the Old and the New Testament, the idea of pure worship, the worship of the contrite spirit and the broken heart, the one that God truly accepts, that's not just about lip service and doing the right thing, but actually is about a heart surrendered to God. True worship for us and for them is a thank you and not a please. When we read passages like this, the mistake would be that God's mad because we didn't do enough or bring enough. But obviously, they've done enough, and they brought enough, and it's still not acceptable to him because it's not about what's in the hand. It's about what's in the heart. And so the, the application becomes, what is missing? The missing piece is that the people of God are always supposed to be in worship, going before God with a thank you and not a please. If you look at, for example, uh, Abraham and his story, the altars that, that Abraham would lift up as incense that please God were never before the provision. They were always after it. They were never a please God if I do this the right way, make my life better. They were never, I don't have something, I will go to God, beg him for it to happen in worship, and then it will happen. The issue of worship is not a cause, it's an effect. So pure worship is not a please, it's a thank you. So here's a stop point right here, as we just got done worshiping 20 minutes ago. When you go before the Lord to worship, when you, when you turn on the worship music, when you come before him on a day that you're broken and you're contrite and you're hurting, is your worship a please or is it a thank you? Is it a, I don't have enough, you're not enough, you need to do more for me, for me to know that you're real, or is it, I have enough, you've given me, you're enough, and I thank you? That's a big deal. Because the proverb is telling you that ultimately that please, if it's there, and it's, if it's a please, not a thank you, will get taken off from the beginning of time since Genesis 3 all the way through the end of the book, that please, if it's not answered the right way, in our human heart will turn into a gimme. Remember the, the prodigal son, right? The prodigal son, it says he has the inheritance, he's living with his father, and somehow decides that his inheritance, what he has in Jesus, is not enough. So he needs to go off to another town to go get what God has not given him because God's holding out on him. Remember the lie from Genesis 3? He's not, hold, he doesn't, he's not giving you enough, you need to go and get it. So it says he leaves, he spends all of his inheritance, and he ends up in a pig farm to realize that what he has was more than anything he could ever get. And this is where the idol is formed. This is where um, a young girl who um, you know, doesn't have the affection of her parents, doesn't have the affection of her father, comes to the place where um, she will go before God. And in her heart of heart, I mean, she's not going to say it out in worship when we're singing, singing Hillsong, but she'll say to herself, God's not enough. I must not be enough. I don't have enough. And that not enough goes from a thank you into a gimme. It goes into the arms of another man. It goes, goes into, you know, the next boyfriend. It goes into so forth. It could, it could be any number of these repetitive stories, but we've seen it before. It's the case of Dave Chappelle. It's the case of our lives. It's the case of so many testimonies when what's sacred is given for what's fleeting. And the thank you of worship turns into a gimme into the world. And this is the place where the idolatry 
uh, begins, and this is the place where, where it continues to grow. All right, it continues on. Uh, Isaiah chapter 1, continuing on in verse 21. See how the faithful city has become a prostitute. This is why the word, the prostitute idea is such an, an easy um, biblical illustration for what idolatry looks like. Because what else is the prostitute except for giving what was given for love for money? That's the perfect illustration of what, what, what uh, idolatry looks like. It's taking what was given to me, a beautiful young woman who has um, the divine breath in her to um, have family, to be a friend, to be a sister, to be a gospel preacher, uh, a, a beautiful young lady who has found herself, like Cain, um, not unlike the prodigal son, feeling like she's not enough and she doesn't have enough. She, she's got to go get what God hasn't given her, right? So the prostitute now takes what was given to her for love and gives it for money. That's the picture of it. That's it. I couldn't make it any clear. The Bible is not going to make it any clearer to us about what idolatry looks like. You have a sacred gift. Dave Chappelle can tell jokes. What can you do? You, you have art. You have a few breaths on this earth. You have love to give. And that's given to you by God in a relational way to give to this world because you have enough and because it's a thank you and because you have one life to live as a living offering. But the trick becomes if we don't believe that it's enough, then our thank you turns into a gimme and that gimme turns into an idol. And we give for love what was meant for love in exchange for money or for power or something else. So all idolatry always turns into injustice. Look what it says. See how the faithful city has become a prostitute. She once was full of justice. She was full of righteousness. These things used to dwell in her. And now they're murderers. Your silver has become dross. Your choice wine is diluted with water. Your rulers are rebels. Partners with thieves. They are all in love with bribes. And they chase after gifts. They do not defend the cause of the fatherless uh, or the widow's case that has um, come before them. And so this is, this is the nature that all idols grow into the maturity of injustice. And every injustice that we've ever seen um, has originally come out of idols. There's no such thing as an innocent idol. I think in our uh, current culture, you know, we imagine that, um, that being weak and uh, lacking power in the world is what makes us innocent. But uh, the, the scriptures in Isaiah in Romans 1 would tell us that no matter rich or poor or strong or weak, all of us, all of us have the ability to have um, the, the, the idolatry, the giving away of what's sacred for what's fleeting in our heart. And a lot of times we'll look upwards um, towards the ruling class of the day and we'll think, boy, if I was in charge, I would rule it better than that. You know, but think about it like uh, I'm a history teacher and, I'll, and you know, you read through the, the horrors of, of some of the hardest parts of American history about, about slavery you know, even, even in terms of the tone of skin and the class of, of the way that race vets itself out, even within the plantation system, the lighter the skin or the person that was working in the house will still use even the little bit of authority that they'll have against even their own bro- brothers and sisters. And, and so this is the nature of, of idolatry. It's neither woman nor male. It's neither, you know, Asian or white. It's, it's no matter what class that there is something in us that doesn't believe that God's enough or that we're enough. And what doesn't have enough will not say thank you. It will take and it will take and take and take until it grows. And Paul says it'll get handed over. All right, so this is the message of the prophet. And as you're reading through the prophets, they're tough ones. But this is the basic cycle of every single prophetic book, whether it's the major or the minor prophets. And that is this, number one, all prophets come to bring the accusation that every one of us, every one of us is an idol factory. Every one of us is given to make God in the image that we want. And all idols make us all, makes, makes, all of us are not innocent because of these idols, because every idol grown up into maturity with a full-grown beard eaten out of your fridge will produce a kingdom of injustice. 
Every human is an idol factory, and every idol is a, is a tyrannical dictator. And the way that the Israelites will find out if they have idols or not is whether or not they're living in Canaan or not. That was the Mosaic Covenant. Most of the covenant is unconditional, but the one condition of the covenant is if you do not uh, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, if you take idols instead of me, you will be exiled from the land. So that's number one. As you're reading, you're looking for that theme. Number two, you're looking for the warning. The day of the Lord will come when usually judgment comes as a warning that will cause salvation, but at the end of time, there will be uh, no opportunity for us uh, to turn away from our idols. There will be a come time when it's too late. And we will have to answer for the idols and the injustice that we have all caused. There are no innocent or isolated idols. Every, every pornography idol, every comfort idol, every race idol, every um, hipster, what, I mean, culture idol, whatever idol that you, anything that you're putting over Jesus is injuring your brother or sister. There are no innocent idols. And we will all answer for those. And it doesn't matter how rich you are. It doesn't matter how poor you are. Those idols will cause injury. And they will cause judgment. And this, this, is why, this is what the prophets have come to say then and now. And lastly, they come to bring a new covenant hope and a new kingdom when God will burn away the chaff and burn away the idols of this world and recreate us into a new creation that truly does love God and love people with all of our heart and all of our mind and all of our strength. And it's not fun news, but it's good news. It's good to know the truth. And it's good to be sobered. And it's good to have a new 2020 vision sometimes to see clearly. Our idols will make us blind, but Jesus will help us to see. So here's just a couple of books. I'll, I'll run through a couple of books and I'll show you the pattern. Um, so Isaiah and Jeremiah are the first two kind of biggies. They're the major prophets and they're just major because they're longer. Everything on this board is all chronological uh, except for the first five which are given to because of the volume because they have the most verses in them. But the picture of Isaiah, I'll just give you an example. Isaiah is coming forward and they're saying Jerusalem is a tree and the tree has produced bad fruit. They did not fulfill the covenant. You know, that was the first theme, is that there's a covenant that came from Moses, and they were not able to fill the covenant, so the axe has to come and chop them down, because they were not the tree that was going to bring the fruit to the nations. So there's a little hope that we'll get to in a second, which is called the root of Jesse, that grows out of this tree, that's kind of a, a sprout of hope. But we're meant to pay attention to this other character, the axe, which is made of Babylon and Assyria. And the beast, and I'm going to get to this point in just a minute, the beast is made up in the Bible of powerful nations, military machines that have come to act on God's behalf. They are gloves in his hand of his sovereign decree to judge both Israel and the nations. And so the Acts comes down and says, you haven't been producing the fruit, you are not able to fulfill the covenant, I'm chopping you down. And so then the second picture becomes that of fire, of burning away the old Jerusalem and creating a new Jerusalem, a new kingdom that will establish forever, much like Sharon was talking about earlier. Let me explain Jeremiah, and then I'll come and couple these two together. The second picture of Jeremiah, if you could see, I've got a picture of Israel and a picture of the nations. And it's, it's painting a picture of the fact that although Israel is worshiping uh, in form um, in their temple that God has sanctioned for them, their heart is not any different from the nations. Israel has become the nations. They've become just as corrupt as Egypt and Babylon and Assyria. So they're the same. They're doing the same thing. They look different and they dress different, but their idols are still there. And they call it Jesus, and they call it revival, and they call it justice, and they call it all sorts of labels, but at the end of the day, it's me, 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 me. It's still the gimme. It's not the thank you. And so because of this, there's a cup of wrath that's supposed to last for 70 years that is the exile. So the exile is a natural consequence. So if you're a parent, you should read a book called Love and Logic. Love and Logic says you shouldn't punish your kids. You should give them consequences. There's a difference. Punishment means that I'm retributing to you 
you hurt me, you broke my dishes, so I'm going to make you pay, so I'm going to hit you back. We've all been a part of that. And Ephesians tells us the reasons why our kids get exasperated with us is because they sense that our parenting is not actually out of restoration, but it's out of justice. It's out of punishment. Like, I want to get back at you because you're annoying me. That's two, that parenting and punishment is two separate things. And so if you actually look at this board, as well as all the narratives we've looked at so far, God is not a punisher as much as he is a natural consequencer, if I can use that term. Right? So the idea is if, if the kids hit somebody else with a Lego, you don't hit them with, over the head. That's not the right answer. The answer is take their Legos away because they need to see the consequence of their action. If you don't play with your Legos the right way, it's not a good choice, right? So if you think about it, from the very beginning of time, like the reason why the flood came was because the humans were unraveling the structure of the world with their sin. And so God says, okay, you want to unravel the work that I'm doing? We'll go right back to Genesis 1 before you were here, and we'll just fill this whole thing with the watery abyss. You see how that works? He takes the action, and he's expediting it to the furthest possible conclusion. You want to unravel the system? I'll show you what this looks like the watery deep, when the Holy Spirit hovered above it, and see how this goes when you continue to reject me, right? Sodom and Gomorrah, the people were inflamed with, like, with passion and, and sexuality and all this stuff, right? They were inflamed with their lust. And he sends the very, the very object that they were creating in its fullest form down on them to teach them about the consequence of their sin because he wants to restore. He doesn't want to, he's not trying to get back or pay back. He wants them healthy. He wants them grown, so he's going to give them the natural consequence. When they complain to him in Moses and the sons of Korah in, in Numbers, you know, they're complaining about how the land's not providing for them and how they promise you know, grapes and honey and how come we don't have all the stuff that God promised. Well, they're complaining about the land. What is the consequence for Korah's rebellion? The land swallows them up. You see, the natural consequence is God's not you know, intervening with some like, uh, you know, random top-of-his-head type of a punishment conclusion. He's taking their choice and accelerating it. I remember this show called King of the Hill with this little kid, and he gets caught smoking cigarettes. Remember, I don't know if this is good parenting. I probably won't do it this way. But the little, you know, now Bobby, come and sit down. And he has the kid smoke 400 cigarettes until his face turns green. And, of course, the episode is sarcastic, and he continues to smoke cigarettes anyways. Right? But this is the idea, is that it's good for us. You know, like, kids in high school think that sex has no consequences. And then somebody will get pregnant in high school. And there's mercy there, and there's grace there, right? And, and there's family that's going to come out of that, and growth that's going to come out of that. But those kids need to see that. He accelerates. He says, if you want this. And so what is exile? What is exile? Exile is saying, if you want your idols, then go and live with them. If you want the idols of Babylon, and you are so convinced they're going to provide for you in the ways that I don't, then you can have them. And if you have allowed your idols to make you an unjust and corrupt nation, then I'll show you what it's like to live in injustice. I'll let the unjust things of the world teach you about justice. Boy, there's nothing worse for a little kid than having their sibling tell them about the consequence they're about to get. You know what would get Leo so infuriated right now? If I told Leo that Rose was about to tell him what his punishment was about to be, that would be injustice to its fullest extent, right? And so this is, um, this is, the, this is, this is the story to continue. So Lamentations is, is, is a poem. It's, it's about the dignity of suffering that even when there's suffering and even when it's brought on yourself, that crying out to God is always a good idea. And so my little pictures of the children that used to be happy and then they're sad and there was food and plenty and bounty and now there's no provision. And then there was kings, kings of glory like David and Solomon and then it led to exile. And so this is the story of, of, of Lamentations that doesn't end on a very upbeat, but it still says that even if you don't feel upbeat, that worshiping, worshiping and praying and seeking is always a good idea. 
The book of Ezekiel begins with the presence of God on these cherubims, you know, this flying um, ark that, that makes its way and leaves Israel. It flies over the nations and then eventually judges the nations and saves some of the nations and establishes the kingdom of the new Jerusalem. At the end of the book, this prophecy forward of a Messiah that would come and bring a new Jerusalem with a, with a water that would flow out of it like the Holy Spirit and it would bring a new Eden and a new creation uh, to, to the humans out of the nations. And so um, this is the good news. The good news of the gospel is that, look, it's not about nationality or creed. It is about faith. And he has come to bring a hopeful seed, a seed of David, that anyone that would trust could be grafted in, that you and I, I was born in Hong Kong. I was not born in Israel. And I don't know if you were born in Israel. I doubt that you were. But we are accepted because the Ark of the Covenant, the promise, moved past Israel and went on to Judea and Jerusalem and the ends of the earth and is called a new covenant remnant that would come out of all the nations, including Israel, to join a new covenant family that would be based on the faith, uh, based on the righteousness that is accredited by faith. And so the good news is, is that, that he has brought a salvation to us through Jesus. Here's the bad news, though. Here's the bad news. And we experience this, I think, on a day-to-day basis. But the bad news is, is that as we are being made that remnant, as I suggested earlier, he is using the unjust to teach us about justice. So here's the thing. Um, uh, we were talking about earlier, you know, the, the failed um, kingdom of priests experiment in the book of the, the history books. And uh, if you guys remember, um, the media section of that whole entire segment, especially in 1 Samuel, is the story of Saul and David. Do you guys know the story of Saul and David? David was the one who killed Goliath with um, a slingshot, uh, and he was anointed king by God, whereas Saul was anointed king by the people. And we read this story, and we're like, boy, that's a really long story. And, uh, yeah, we we realize it's a very long story. Um, But then if we do any thinking about it, we realize the reason why it's such a long story is because that story is about us. It's funny, we're down here, you know, and and, uh, I don't know if you ever remember the first time that you ever came in in contact with, like, uh, a bad authority, you know, like um, somebody that's like a Saul. I mean, that's how we're supposed to relate it. Somebody who is um, using you, not serving you. Somebody that's using their authority against you and not for you. Uh, maybe that was a parent. Maybe that was a babysitter. Maybe that was an uncle and aunt. But it's meant to catch us, those scriptures, uh, because I think, really, that when we encounter unjust leaders, we think to ourselves, God, you are never going to believe this, but there is an unjust leader down here, and I'm going to need you to do something about it. I know that you've probably never heard this before, this is crazy. I mean, there's a person down here who is just getting upset with me when I'm late to work, and I think you need to do something about it, and I refuse to be a Christian until you handle it. You know, something like this. The reason why, the reason why it's such a long narrative is because it's such a prolific part of all of our stories. The reason why God has provided for us stories like this in the Bible is because he knows that it's most of our life. Most of our life, we are dealing with people above us, beside us, or below us who practice injustice. And so that little Willy Wonka meme, you know that one? He's like, oh, you don't say. So God is teaching us justice by putting us with the unjust. And he's not surprised whatsoever about it. And he is showing us through this, the narrative of Saul and David that uh, the reason why he allows this to happen is because the good news is that he's saving us through Jesus. But the bad news is he's making us just through unjust people. And that the judgment, the discipline, and the testing that's coming to us often comes through people that don't look like him. And this is the, this is the story that uh, kind of culminates into uh, the book of Daniel, which is where Dave Chappelle, I think, is maybe more prophetic than he gives himself credit for, 
when he talks about this beast that forms up out of these nations. Gog is another name for this uh, universal, not any type of one nation or the other one. It's not Assyria or Babylon. It's just the the consuming powers. Uh, Paul would call them the principalities that kind of take hold of um, our situations, our daily lives. And, And he is telling us, that if we want our idols, we can have them. And as we live up under them, we are having to learn uh, justice, unfortunately, at the hands of the unjust. But, but, he has come to bring a just one. If you look at Daniel chapter 7, I'm just going to read a couple of verses about what God has to say about the beast and the casting couch and Hollywood and, uh, and um, you know, government and politics and sports and all the other corrupt things that we, can, we as humans can create with our human hands and with our idols. This is what Daniel 7 says. You trust God... And God will vindicate you. Listen, the reason why you have an unjust person in your life, whether that's a dad or, or a boss or um, a church leader or anyone else, the reason why you have somebody that doesn't look like Jesus, that has authority in your life, is because he wants to test if you trust them or trust him. He wants to test this question. Is that person going to vindicate you or is he going to vindicate you? That is the crux of the, of the question of authority. We will never run out of Saul's. He is not surprised by Saul's. God, I cannot believe you will not believe how unjust this person is. They are so incompetent in their leadership, and they are so awful. And man, if I had their job, I would straighten the whole world out. He's like, man, if I've never heard this speech before. He's like, this test is not going away because it is the test of the age. It's not can you find injustice, it's what will you do with it, right? What will you do with the injustice that you find? Will you point it out? Will you complain about it? Or will you worship? Will you trust? And so the essence of Daniel 7 says this, God will vindicate you. God will be the judge. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. As I looked, thrones were set in place and the ancient of days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow. The hair of his head was white like wool. His throne was flaming like fire and his wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out before him. Thousands and thousands and thousands attended him. 10,000 times, 10,000 stood before him. The court was seated and the books were open. Then it says, I continue to watch because of the boastful words, the horn, which represents one of the um, nations on this beast. I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body destroyed and thrown into a blazing fire. The other beasts had been stripped of their authority and were allowed to live for a period of time. In my vision at night, I looked and there before me was one like the son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and people of every language worshiped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. The only one that can bring justice um, is Jesus. And so, um, Jesus. Jesus is the one that brings authority. The problem with my rendition of justice is that when I come to you and say, hey, you're wrong, the problem with it ultimately is I have no grounds to stand on because ultimately I'm wrong. And every injustice that I ever point out is a mirror back to me because I've created just as much injustice as you. So what you have in the world without Jesus is a bunch of people pointing fingers about why the other person's wrong with no justice to be had because there's no one that's right. There's no one that's sinless and there's no one that can sit on the throne. There's no one that can occupy the kingdom of heaven forever and ever onto perpetuity into the universe except for him. And so ultimately that boardroom and that car dealer and that joke stealer all need Jesus as well as you and me. And we need our hearts melted by Jesus. And we need to have a confrontation, a good confrontation. So we understand justice is only in Jesus. Justice doesn't come from wokeness. It doesn't come from political correctness. It doesn't come from getting our cards right. It comes from repentance. It comes from me realizing that I'm not king and he is. And neither are you and he is. This is the only place that justice lives. It's the only hope that we have, you know, for justice. So Brooks Dixon, he's a wise man. You need to know Brooks Dixon. He's in my small group. 
He had a great line for me, man. I was like, man, I wish I had that two weeks ago. We could all said this and said amen. He said, authority is not taken, it's given. Guns can take power, but only authority can only be given by God. Authority is given and it's not taken. So here's the trick. As a parent, you think, I'm the one that's the parent and I have the authority. And that means that I can tell my kids what to do. Well, here's the reality. Your kids don't have to listen to you because they have authority too. And they can choose to use that authority to close their ears. And you'll find that out pretty quickly once you're 18 years old, right? Or once they're 18 years old. So Jesus wasn't saying, here's a better way to practice authority, serving. He's saying, here's the only way to practice authority, serving. Because in the kingdom, kingdom is, is authority is not taken. It's given by trust. And the only way that I can get you or anyone else to trust me or the only way that Jesus gets people to trust him is to serve. He says, don't rule and lord it over like the Gentiles because that's not going to work because that's not how the kingdom is set up. The kingdom is not set up by taking and grabbing. The kingdom is set up by giving and trusting. So the only way to access somebody's authority, if you want them to listen to you, is to serve them. He's not just showing you a fancy way to look good. He's showing you the only way to access authority. In the kingdom of heaven, the only access to authority is serving. And so when we think about what does justice look like, justice does look like calling out things and showing what's wrong, but the engine of justice is serving. The engine of justice is honor, honor upwards and serving downwards. You know, the world in its, in its beast, you know, manifestation is here to take, it's here to grab, it's here to flatter, it's here to extort, it's here to bribe, it's here to do whatever it can to get fed. But Jesus comes and he doesn't rule like the beast, he rules like a man. The son of man has come to turn the beast upside down and he's come to show authority that looks like a different way. And the only access to true authority from the garden is through trust. And the only way through trust is through serving. And so Jesus isn't just showing another way. He's showing the only way. All right, I've got to pick up my pace here. But since the theme has been established, it shouldn't be too hard. The story of, um, of Hosea is the story of a prophet who's told to go marry a prostitute to show what it's like to have um, a, a, a bride, Israel, that's a harlot. And so Gomer has to go and marry and stay, or excuse me, Hosea has to go marry and stay with Gomer, who is giving away what was given to her for love for the exchange of money for the exchange of idolatry. And so that's the picture of idolatry. But he says, through that, I'm going to use the stubborn people that I've always been using, like Jacob and Israel and Saul, and bring life back to them through the tree of Abraham and through faith and establish the kingdom in perpetuity into the universe. Uh, in Joel, there's a great theme of both locusts and the army of the Lord. And what he's showing there is actually that the judgment that comes, the day of the Lord, is both natural and supernatural. That the armies, the, the, the Assyrians, the Babylons, or the big sisters and the big brothers that are giving you noogies that are unjust, they are all within the sovereign domain of God. And all will answer, and every knee will bow, and everyone will answer ultimately to the authority of King Jesus. And so we've never known a king like him. We've never known a kingdom like him. And ultimately, the question is not, do you trust your boss? The question is, do you trust Jesus? Every knee will bow to him, and the one that waits on him will become the remnant. Whether you're from Turkey, Afghanistan, or you're from Israel, you, according to faith, will be grafted into this new city, this vision of a new kingdom. Amos says that if you really want to seek God, you should be seeking good, because God looks like justice and righteousness and mercy. And so the people that talk about it ought to, ought to do something about it. And so he's calling out, you know, the greed of the Israelite kings, and they're using slaves of becoming more like Egypt than they were like the promised people, and their practice of injustice. And they're saying, listen, if you really want to tell if you have idols in your heart or not, you should look for, for justice. The only way that you have, uh, you, the only ones that will have justice are the ones that worship Yahweh, and the ones that worship Yahweh will always have justice. So if you, if you don't have justice in your home, and you favor one kid over another, you know that something has gone wrong, and you've put an idol somewhere inside of your heart. This picture of Obadiah is these mocking Edomites, these people that were named like Adam, the outsiders that were mocking Israel, you know? Like, 
sticking their sibling's head in the ground for you know, the, the justice and judgment that they're getting, and they're laughing about it. He's saying, they're going to get their due. Everyone will answer. Even the unjust ones, I'm going to take care of it. I will vindicate, says the Lord. I'm the righteous one. I'm the one that's going to give judgment. Leave space for me. I'm the only one that can bring justice and the only one that can bring judgment. And so all nations will ultimately answer to me. Uh, Jonah is, um, is a procrastinating prophet. He's a reluctant prophet who uh, tells his people that are in this boat that he's you know, sailing over to Nineveh on to throw him overboard because he actually wants to die. That is, the blood that he dies would be on their hands and they would become you know, judged because uh, ultimately we find out he doesn't want to love his enemy because he knows that God's merciful and if he pleads on the behalf of these enemies, they're going to you know, turn and, he's, and they're going to experience the same kind of inheritance that Jonah's experienced and he hates his so enemies so much, he'd rather die cursing his enemies than live to bless them. And so he ends up getting spat up by the whale and confronted, and it's a great portrait of what it means to um, see ourselves as part of the nations and part of the inheritance and loving our neighbor and so forth. Another one with Micah, which pairs well with Amos, is again about justice and mercy and humility. If you really are worshiping, the product of worship is always justice. You cannot have injustice and worship in the same place. If you really are worshiping, you will have justice. Anything that has injustice comes from the seed of idolatry. Ultimately, Jesus is the perfect picture uh, of justice. And so, that, so um, th- that, is, that is the picture, that is the call. All right, moving on, this is the last row, and, and I'll, I'll kind of tie it up for the morning. The picture of Nahum um, is, uh, is asking, you know, these two books right here in, in Habakkuk are asking about, like, why do the nations conspire, and how come it seems like they're winning for the day? And he's showing them, look, I am handing people over to their own sin, and nobody that sins ever wins, and nobody that has idols and creates injustice and incorrupt systems will ever, they'll laugh for a day, but they're not going to win in the end. The day of the Lord is an equalizer. It will equalize everything in this room. It will lay everything bare and leave everything uh, true um, and judged rightly. And so he's saying that uh, Babylon will kill Assyria, but Assyria, but, but Babylon will ultimately be uh, wiped out as well. The beast, every beast, every beast will be held accountable. Every knee will bow is the point. And so he says, remember, in Egypt, remember when I took out Pharaoh? As if I've never seen this before? As if this is the only unjust, corrupt nation you've ever seen? As though this is like something new under the sun? You'll never believe what they're doing now, Lord. They're using their money to create slaves and create incorrupt systems and create contracts that hold the weak down. You'll never believe it, Lord. Something totally new. You better do something about it. He's like, don't you know? Like, this is the beginning of time. This is what I did in Egypt. And don't you remember I rescued you? And don't you remember I'll be faithful again? So there's a future exodus that's going to wipe out all the Assyrians and the Babylonians in the end. Zephaniah is a picture of Israel looking indistinguishable from Egypt and reminding them that just because they have favor doesn't mean that they're favorites. And they're meant to be a blessing, you know, blessed to be a blessing. I don't know what kinds of applications. There's lots of different applications to all this, but I hope that you, you know, I pray that the Holy Spirit, you know, as you maybe would meditate on some of these scriptures, would speak directly to your system, you know, to your situation. Like, like am, I, am I a follower of Jesus in just name alone or in heart? Is there justice that flows out of me and mercy like a mighty stream? Or is it some kind of a, a blood sacrifice in a new moon festival? Is it outside without the inside? The remnant will be saved. All right, I'll close with this last theme, and that is the books of Haggai and Zechariah and Malachi. The pictures of Haggai and Zechariah, um, they, they propose the future without a sense of, of promise. Like, like there's almost like a, if you follow this, we, we will see this. But, it's, but, but there's a level of participation. Like he takes the passive onlooker and he says, just because you know the future through prophecy, don't just sit passively on the sideline. Get engaged. Like, like trust. There's something to be done here as we wait on the Lord to bring his ultimate reckoning on the earth. There's a participation that we practice. And so that's why the end of it is left out. 
And so the book of Haggai is after the exile. They're building up the temple. They're building up, um, you know, uh, the city of, of Israel, as Jerusalem, as they've been let out by Cyrus, the dictator from Persia. And so um, there's this confrontation about how instead of building the temple, they're spending their time building their own houses. They're making their houses look nice, and they're not spending time on the, on the temple of the Lord. And they're intermarrying with, um, you know, the... The, the, the other cultures around them, and they're breaking all the covenant left and right. And, and so this Haggai is asking, them, how could you get released you know, for freedom and then just use your freedom to imprison yourself again? And then there's another picture of, um, of Malachi. You guys know this one. This is the big tithe one, right? Like, fill up the storehouses with the tithe and see if I don't pour out blessing on you, right? So that's another picture is like the people of God have these almost two different pathways to choose from. And they could choose the all-in, the first and the best. I'm going to worship with all of my heart, all of my mind, all of my strength, or I'm going to give the first and the best to my idols, and I'm going to leave the leftovers for whatever else I have for the kingdom of God. So um, this is my little illustration with this, and I'll, I'll come to a close here. But um, I was, uh, had a great opportunity to go check out a great uh, basketball game yesterday at Furman from my good buddy, Coach Williams, back there. Um, and I appreciate it. He and his uh, wife, Stephanie, are awesome. They're coaches, and they minister to the Furman basketball team. And uh, I got to tell Jimmy, I texted him yesterday, but, like, the team is just so well coached. The other team was incredibly athletic, and you could see a lot of, like, off-the-dribble, you know, scoring and a lot of, like, um, you know, really just strong basketball players on the other team, but you could tell the talking and the humility and everybody stepped up and everybody kind of had a role. You could tell that there was this all-in feel, you know, on that team. And so um, the picture, the picture of these last two stories is a sobering one, and I think that's the one that we might land with today. If, if, if all injustice comes from idolatry and all justice comes from Jesus and all justice comes from worship, then the question will be not how well do we protest and not how well do we organize, but how well do we worship and how much do we worship? Do we give our first and our best or do we give our last and our least? Um, you know, in Acts chapter 4, there's a couple zingers in the Bible, and hopefully, I don't know, I don't ever really want to preach on it ever, but I guess I'm talking about it today. There's a couple named Ananias and Sapphira. Have you guys read this story? It's a, it's a, it's, it's a tough one. Um, the church is getting started in Ananias and Sapphira. You know, they hold back. Um, the property sales from their house that they sold, and Paul confronts them, or Peter confronts them, and he says to them, basically, your actions are going to lead to death. And uh, it's, a very, it's a very, you know, I would tell you, you know, don't get too hung up on it, and it's not probably a story that happens all the time. It doesn't happen ever again in the Bible, and I don't think I've ever heard of anything like that. They actually get the youth group to come and drag them out after they pass away from not tithing. And I'm certainly not bringing it up to tell you that anybody's going to drop dead from not tithing. Please don't hear me wrong on this. But I do think that it's making a strong message, and that Every judgment is ultimately an accelerated consequence. And he's trying to show what happens to anemic church that doesn't worship and has idols. Because here's what he's saying. The world's in a tough place, but it's in an even tougher place. If the church, if the church has idols, what hope does the world have? Is kind of what I think it's saying. If the, church, if the church does not humble itself, turn from its wicked ways, and seek God's face, how on earth can the, can the land be healed? So on day one, I think he is trying to make a point. He's not saying that this is the immediate consequence. He's saying this is the ultimate consequence. There's only death. If the church does not draw a line in the sand to make its life about worship, if it only gives the last and the least to its small groups and to its discipleship and to its church and to its worship, it's the the leftovers of what else I have, I'll just kind of give to the Lord and hope that it all works out for me. It's saying not only is the church, but everything in its circumference of uh, influence is going to be deeply damaged. And so before us, you know, is two teams. Like, it's two different visions of the church. It's a, it's a temple that's, like, beautiful and robust, you know? And there's, in, in the churches in Greenville, there's doctors and lawyers and brilliant communicators, musicians and artists. 
and there will be a picture, you know, of, of a church that could be ours, you know, that could be something that we participate in that represents us giving our first and our best because here's the, here's the reality. Like any team that gives everything always has enough. Every team, I believe that's the promise of God, at least in the Bible. I don't know about basketball, but in the scriptures, there is more than enough in this room. There's more than enough talent. There's more than enough giftedness. There's more than enough. Like God has given us the abundance to see the city healed. We are the hope. The local church is the hope of the gospel. But this is, this is the, the tough reckoning, is if, if the church has idols, then what is the hope for justice in the world? What is the hope for justice? Like if, 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 if there is going to be something different on the five o'clock news for Leo to grow up to, it'll be because it starts in the church. It's because it'll be our casting out idols. And so there's a way different, there's a big gap between me calling somebody else out and calling myself out. There's a big gap between recognizing injustice and surrendering to it. And so I'll leave you with this, and I'll invite Timothy up for our our call to worship, or excuse me, for our intentional question for the week. But this is the question I think that the prophets would tell us. The prophets have come to tell us sobering, hard, but good news. All idols create injustice, and no one is innocent. We are all part of either fighting or feeding the beast. And it's not solved by ultimately political rhetoric. Ultimately, I do believe that the nonviolent practices of, of, of Martin Luther King Jr. is the way we would probably socially organize. It's saying to God, I'm not trusting them for justice, I'm trusting you. And he always hears the cries of the oppressed. And he always responds to righteousness in the middle of injustice. He's going, I'm not surprised there's injustice. I'm not asking them what to do about it. I'm asking you to, what to do about it. And the answer is not complaint. It will be worship. Will we cast out our idols? When we see injustice, will we turn to our idols or turn from them? Will we cast them out or will we gather them in? And will we continue to rally around our idols? This is the question I think the prophets would ask us. And so this is the question I would ask us to consider as we we think about, you know, 2020 and the different injustices that you see in and outside of your home and in the school system and in media and arts for the young children that continue to get extorted, for those that continue to give what's sacred, for those for what's fleeting, for those that continue to get monopolized and manipulated, it will not because I have a, we have a bigger microphone. It's because we have cast out idols. It's because we have learned to turn from our wicked ways, to seek him and to put him first. That justice would flow like a mighty stream, that righteousness would flow. This is who we are. This is who we're created to be. But this is, this is, the, this is the test of every, every generation. So this is the question. I invite you to stand. And we're going to do prayer after this. Um, but when you experience injustice, will you turn to them or turn to him? That's the question, I think. It's not an easy one. It's probably one of the toughest tests. And it's why I think the Lord spends so much time with it in David and Samuel. Is uh, Injustice is not new. And if we see injustice, will we, um, will we do something about it or will we become complicit? Will we trust our idols or will we trust him? Will we respond with thank you or will we respond with give me? This is the only test. This is the one that will be asked um, in our generation. Um, all right. I'm going to pray for us. And I know uh, Tom, how about a hand for Tom as he comes up? Tom's going to lead us in some prayer this morning. Uh, but Lord, I thank you for breaking chains. I, pray, I thank you that you have come to give us an inheritance that we didn't deserve. And we just come to say thank you. And I believe that as we enter in this time of prayer and ministry, that you're going to just break off shackles by the power of your resurrected son. You, re- you rule like no one else has ever ruled. And I pray that you would do the real work of, of, of idol replacement. I pray that you do the real work of turning, turning tables in our heart and turning us back, back to your son. And so anyways, I thank you for ministry and uh, the prayer team that's going to serve this morning. Thanks again for joining us. 
If you have been encouraged or challenged by this message, please give us feedback by leaving a comment on this podcast. For more information on our church, visit us at www.citylights.cc.